Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. Deidre Cooper, thank you so much for joining us on the Greener Way podcast. Um, can you start off by uh, introducing yourself to our audience and telling us a little bit about uh, the way in which uh, 91 addresses climate change and other ESG risks? Absolutely. A pleasure to talk to you, Rachel. I'm Deirdre Cooper. I am the head of the Sustainable Equity Group at 91 and also the co-portfolio manager on our global environment strategy. So, so at a very high level, when we think about um, sustainability at 91, we really focus on sustainability with substance. And what does that actually mean? That means engaging with companies to encourage them to, um, to, to develop science-based net zero plans. It means investing in companies broadly that are doing a good job for all their stakeholders, not just for their financial shareholders. And that to us is a real sea change in the way that people think about investing. Um, the, the industry as a whole focuses way too much on one group of stakeholders, but we really believe that those companies that will thrive, that will have durable competitive advantages, that will be able to generate good returns in the future, are those that think not just about their shareholders and short-term next sort of quarterly earnings, but really understand all their stakeholders. So that includes the planet, what we call natural capital. That's where climate sits, that's where biodiversity sits. It includes um, what we call human capital, which are your employees, you know, in, in some ways your most important stakeholder. And then it includes society at large. So, so some companies are having a really po positive impact on society. Maybe they're, you know, developing products that are helping people get access to finance. Um, perhaps they're developing products in the healthcare sector. Perhaps they're, you know, helping people to bridge a digital divide, which we know is really important. Um, so, so we spend as much time, if not more, thinking about those other stakeholders and how those other stakeholders might impact our financial forecasts and our models as we do, you know, understanding um, the returns to financial shareholders. Um, and that's particularly acute, I think, you know, to go back to your question when we think about climate. Because to us, you know, what we're really talking about with other stakeholders is the end of uninternalized externalities. So externalities in, in economics are, you know, the unintended consequences of your activities that aren't fully valued or priced. And carbon to us is the ultimate externality. You know, it's extraordinary that a, a ton of carbon, the coal flat powered plants that um, powered up last night in the UK because, you know, the UK shorted gas because of the war in Ukraine, that will have an impact on, you know, potentially even more La Niña's in Sydney. Yeah, the butterfly effect writ large, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear that you've identified both biodiversity and climate change, Deirdre. Um, you know, I've spoken a few times over the years. And considering that we're talking sort of at the back end of COP15 after COP27, how how has 91 identified this interplay between biodiversity and, and climate change? I'd love to take an opportunity to talk about this while it's uh, red hot in the, in the headlines, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, Absolutely. I think the first thing we would say is to a large extent, they are correlated. So, you know, if you think about the biggest causes of, of mass extinction, climate change is right at the top. Um, I think that they're not always correlated. And um, so, 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 so that's point number one. Point number two is probably that we have to be really careful 
on um, measurability for biodiversity. It's significantly more difficult to deal with the additionality challenge. So if I engage with a company, you know, to um, to ensure that that company puts in some energy efficiency in their factories, that maybe they build wind and solar so that they source green energy instead of um, instead of dirty fossil based energy. I can measure that fairly easily. Um, and, and it is probably additional. If I engage with a company to source responsible palm oil, it's really difficult to know whether effectively, you know, the, the barrels on the on the boat are being moved around such that the, you know, um, irresponsibly sourced palm oil that is leading to, to mass destruction of forests is going to one customer and they're just giving you the, the palm oil that has the right label. It's one of the reasons why we think the biodiversity topic is one um, where engagement makes a lot of sense at the country rather than the company level. Um, so, so that, that sort of helps address the, those additionality problems and our emerging market, um, fixed income sovereign team really leads on, on biodiversity engagement. Um, and then I guess, you know, sort of linked to the first point, the last thing I would say is under, under no circumstances, do we agree with this as some people wander around and say sort of biodiversity is the new climate, which suggests that we've already addressed climate change. I mean, that's just what <laughs> ridiculous I've ever heard. So, so we, you know, the fact that we have to deal with, with biodiversity does not mean that we are in any way, you know, working our way through the climate challenge, nor does it mean that the, the, the almost biggest issue for um, biodiversity and protection of species is going to be dealing with global warming. And would that it were tw- true that we'd, uh, we'd handled one issue and we're going to move on to another sort of in a linear fashion. <laughs> I know. Goodness me. Um, so given that as sort of the basis for us talking, Deirdre, how does this then start to feed into this global environment strategy that you co-manage? And in terms of um, particularly identifying stakeholders, engaging with stakeholders um, and searching out either uncorrelated sources of risk or potential areas of opportunity? Absolutely. So it informs everything that we do. So so in that global environment strategy, every step of the investment process is focused on those stakeholders. So the first step of the investment process is where we create our investment universe. And that universe is created only for impact. There is no financial element to that screen. So we use a revenue screen. We look for companies that are in the areas that are important in the journey to net zero. So so think about those as the things that need to happen. Um, to get to net zero, we need to green the electricity grid, lots more renewables, lots more investment in grids, right? You can't do the renewables unless you have more robust grids with software and storage. We need to electrify. So we hear a lot about electric cars, but actually we need to electrify heating. We need to electrify many, many industrial processes and factories as well. And then there's an enormous efficiency bucket. So that's energy efficiency, but it's also... Um, thinking about the way that we dispose of waste. It's changing the way that agriculture works, you know, more meat alternatives, different agricultural practices, and um, more sustainable consumer products. So switching from fossil-based chemicals to, to bio-based chemicals, but of course, with our previous conversation in mind, those those um, biochemicals that are made in, a, in using sustainable raw materials. Um, so those are the kind of areas that we're looking at. It'll change over time. We don't have a lot in zero carbon air transport or cement because those technologies effectively don't exist anymore. Mm. 
but they will potentially move into the our universe um um you know as as we run the strategy over a number of years and decades so so that's the first step that's a revenue screen the next step is we work directly with a nonprofit called the carbon disclosure project and we go through each one of those areas and we find um out and develop methodologies to find companies that have products and services that avoid carbon and those rules are different for each sector so for the power sector we look at the carbon footprint of your generation mix and we compare it to your grid. So if you're cleaner than your grid, you have carbon avoided. And that's pretty much a perfect proxy for, for how a carbon market works. Um, you know, if you're better than the than the alternative, you're a net beneficiary of a carbon price. If, if you're worse, um, then you have to pay that carbon price. You know, we, we go all the way back to the value chain. So we own companies that make components that go into electric cars. So maybe semiconductors or connectors or batteries. So, so we take, you know, how many of those components you sell. We take how much of the car they constitute. In some cases, they might be a very tiny percentage of the value of the car, you know, less than 1%. And then we, we multiply that by the emission saved from an electric car versus a combustion engine. And interestingly, the electric car is about twice as carbon intensive to produce because of all those Mm -hmm. materials that go into the battery. But once Mm -hmm. you drive it, you really, really start to save emissions very quickly. Um, Mm. So so we take that into account in the calculation. We multiply all that together. And then you have the emission saved by the the company that is in the EV value chain. And then there's similar, you know, detailed methodologies for, for every sector. Our team spends a lot of time with people at the Carbon Disclosure Project. Um, you know, really mining their data and developing better methodologies and finding those companies um, that that really have those products that are driving decarbonization. And then in our impact report, we report every year on the company's own emissions because we want them to decarbonize their own business. It's not enough to be selling products, you know, that help everyone else. You have to get your own house in order as well and the carbon avoidance so that we can keep track of you know how much the contribution to decarbonization is and whether it's growing and and that really informs our investment decision making so if we have a company that really isn't decarbonizing its own business that really isn't growing its carbon avoided then that will cause us to question our our investment decision and potentially exit that decision i want to hone in on um one term you've been using uh throughout this interview deirdre which is um the term additionality I'm really interested to hear how 91 defines additionality because it's one of those great terms like impact or like sustainability where a lot can be held in the eye of the beholder. Um, And I'm interested in how you define additionality, how you then measure additionality, um, because this can be a a fantastically qualitative uh, measure, I find, when when talking uh, to, to peers in the industry. Yeah, and it's a very complicated concept. Um, so, so when people talk about additionality, I think what we really mean is, would this have happened without my money? And I think Mm -hmm. it often gets confused with the difference between primary and secondary capital. So secondary capital is when I buy a share in the market, that share Mm -hmm. existed before I bought it, it'll exist afterwards. The company doesn't get any new money. You know, I I give the money to you because you used to own the share and now I own it. And then you have mm. primary capital, which in listed markets, you know, are IPOs or fundraisings. Obviously, lots of primary capital in the debt markets because companies have to continually refinance their um, their debt. And then you have private markets. So, you know, when companies invest in private equity um, or, you know, invest in, 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 in the private markets in, in growth equity. 
Um, and there's a sense that that primary capital is more additional than secondary. Mm. And I think the right way to think about it is rather to look, and we use the impact management project framework, um, mm-hmm. separate company impact from investment impact. So, so, you know, when we're talking about the difference between primary capital and secondary capital, we're talking about investment impact. We're not talking about what mm-hmm. the company does. The company could do, you know, could make anything in the world, could make any kind of widget, mm-hmm. but just let's think about us buying it. And mm-hmm. I think the best example to, to illustrate how not all primary capital is additional is to look at the green bond market. So new green bonds are always primary capital. Mm-hmm. But many times they can be up to a thousand times oversubscribed. Mm-hmm. So in that case, if you subscribed, it's not additional. There were 999 other people who were willing to, to make that investment if, if you didn't do it. Which mm-hmm. is why when we think about investment impact and additionality, we think about uh, four, um, four elements to that. And, and those mm. are from the, the Impact Management Project Framework, which is a very well ex, uh, accepted impact framework. So the first mm. one is signaling that impact matters. That's basically talking to you, you know, all this conversation. Yeah. It's yeah. all the work yeah. we do on impact reporting. The next one is engage actively. That's mm-hmm. something we do. I think there's a very wide range of opinion as to what do we engage actively means. Is it voting your proxies or is it getting a board seat? So we don't have board seats. We're not activists. But we do have conversations all the time with companies and we really try to participate in collaborative engagement with other groups, um, you know, with similar priorities. Mm-hmm. And then you get to opening new markets. So that's when you're putting money into something, you know, that, that wouldn't happen without you. Frontier markets, for example, are probably areas where you would say you're opening, you're opening new markets. Um mm. And then on the very far end of additionality, you have, you know, capital that has different risk return criteria than the financial markets. And that's truly additional. So if you're doing something where you're you're either taking a little bit more risk for your return or a slightly lower return, then I think that capital is truly additional. We at 91 run a product that that um, is, is mostly DFI money. So it's government um, money and it does exactly that. It's called the Emerging Mark Africa Infrastructure Fund, and it gives long-term project finance to projects on the African continent, where commercial, you know, rate at least the tenure would not be available in commercial markets. But we mm. think that's a better way to think about that additionality question than simply to say, you know, if it's if it's new money, it's additional. If it's if it's existing shares, it's not. Um, now, having said that, we'd also be very clear that a strategy like global environment does not have the same investment impact as emerging Africa infrastructure mm-hmm. or even a prod, uh, you know, a strategy that had a significant allocation to, to, to frontier markets or opening new markets. Um, mm. so, so we would map global environment as signaling that impact matters and engaging actively, but mm. not as opening new markets or giving, you know, different risk return frameworks mm. where we would mark a strategy like global environment on the, on, on the far impact space is on company impact. So as I said, every company that we invest in has to develop products and services that avoid carbon. So it's so mm-hmm. an impact management project on company impact. You think about A's, which are avoid harm, you know, companies that are mm-hmm. don't have huge externalities, B, benefit stakeholders. So companies that are doing a little bit more, they're actually starting to think about those stakeholders. They're developing practices that help them. Maybe they have great employment practices and pretty good net zero practices. And then you have contribute to solutions, which is where there's an unmet need and the company's developing products to address that. And that's where the carbon avoided universe comes in because the planet is an unmet 
as an mm. unmet need. It's where, you know, maybe financial inclusion, healthcare, digital divide, those things I talked about at the beginning all come mm. in, in in that bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it is really important if you sit in that last bucket um, that you find, and it's not always easy, um, some KPIs to report to track your impact pro- progress. Mm. So as I said, for environment, we, we track carbon avoided for, for every company every year. Um, mm. we're, we're developing methodologies to, to track those other impact mm-hmm. metrics across our global sustainable equity product, our emerging market sustainable equity, that, that looks more broadly than just that climate theme, but looks at, at, at you know, employees, looks at financial inclusion, looks at other stakeholders. Um, and, and it isn't easy to get that, those data points. Um, but mm. we would expect over the coming years that more and more companies report. We're absolutely seeing that with carbon avoided. We will see it on, on other areas. Um, and I think that will be a really powerful trend in dealing with some of the criticism that we've had of ESG, which is that, you know, you're investing in these companies that have good ESG scores, but they're not actually doing anything for the world, right? Mm-hmm. You're only looking mm-hmm. at the avoiding harm element of mm-hmm. that framework. You're not looking at the contributor solutions. So, so mm-hmm. we as an industry really need to develop more and more of those metrics that track not just whether the company is, is well run, but whether it is actually developing products that are helping, um, you know, in, in a very simplistic way, make the world a better place. I think the debate that we're having sort of writ large globally around, you know, ESG, greenwashing, sustainability, impact additionality, and having that deb- debate in sort of an open and transparent manner without being being in a defensive crouch about it, but really being very specific about what these terms mean. This is the this is the debate we need to be having in terms of, you know, pushing that agenda forward in terms of being clear with stakeholders. It's um it's really fascinating to hear um how different fund managers are grappling with this and you know, taking it, taking it to the lead. I wanted to ask you as well. Now, you have been in the investment industry about as long as I've been in the journalism industry. We don't need a specific quantifiable number (laughs) attached to that. But as two people who have a little bit of experience in our respective industries, what have been some of the most significant challenges you've seen, um, particularly as sustainable investing is coming to the forefront? Um, How are things things traveling over this, this, this period of time for both of us? Yeah, it's a great question because you rightly point out, you know, I, I will put a number just so people have an idea. I st- I started working in this industry about two decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the first part of that was more in the private market. So, you know, mm-hmm. both advisory and investing. So I worked um, in 2005 on the first ever microfinance securitization. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I worked on investing in private markets in, in companies in the clean tech space. Um, and I think that highlights that journey highlights challenge number one that I think everyone in this industry has, which is scalability. You know, there are some amazing projects that you can do on a micro level, but mm. trying to grow that. And I think that's something the industry is still grappling with. Trying to grow that to, to mass scale it is, is really challenging. Um, and as soon as you do that, you do get those debates of, well, that's probably not quite as purist as, as what you used to do, but we really aren't going to get there um, unless we have large scale solutions. Mm. Um, and, and that will require um, 
you know, it'll take a little bit of time. Not, not all the projects will be as perfect as the tiny little ones you did at the beginning. And, and it also requires, um, you know, a sort of mass movement, which I think is getting off the ground a little bit and better data. So, so companies need to, need to report more and, um, that, that helps us to, to put capital to work towards those companies that are really developing products um, that are helping address um, unmet needs. Um, and you know, it, it, and it is, it's fascinating. You know, I peer review for the IEA, the International Energy Agency. So look at their net zero scenarios, et cetera. And one of the things IEA has really highlighted, which I think is so important, is the, the fact that if we look at the investment to get to net zero, the developed world and China are every year that amount is growing and it's growing really quickly. So as I'm not going to say that we're on the right track, but at least um, the, the capital flows are moving in the right direction. If you look at emerging markets ex-China, that's basically flat-ish for the last couple of years. Um, and it is, it is by far and away um, the biggest challenge. You know, so it's much, much harder for countries like South Africa, like Indonesia, like India to transition, given where their economies are, given how reliant they are on external capital markets, given how many people are employed in these industries and, and the problem with you know, generating economic growth. So ultimately, carbon emissions are perfectly correlated with GDP. It's about 93 percent. Mm-hmm. So as a result, 90 percent mm-hmm. of the growth in carbon emissions is coming from emerging markets. And the, the least developed you are, typically, the higher your percentage growth is, because it's just off such a tiny base, the more you're going to grow your emissions, the harder it is to do it. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, we've been working at 91. This is our key advocacy point. We are a business that was formed in an emerging market, formed in the emerging market that probably has the hardest transition. You know, South mm. Africa is a coal-based economy. That includes employment, it includes government revenues, and it includes how, the, how people turn the lights on. Um, so they have an extraordinarily difficult task to transition. Um, mm. And we think it's really important to highlight that and to highlight that, you know, in some ways, the easiest piece of the funding puzzle for those countries is is very specific um, direct equity into wind and solar projects. The harder piece is let's fund the electricity grid because we don't have the electricity grid. We can't bring in renewable energy. Let's fund you know, capacity development at the utilities so they can develop a market design that works for renewable mm. energy. And and those bits get a little bit more complicated because in the short term, that electricity grid's going to have some coal electrons in it. And broadly speaking, having money flow into, um, you know, uh, South African uh, credit and, and debt markets matters for, for that mm-hmm. transition. But if you set really short-term um, you know, net zero goals that just optimize for carbon emissions. And the easiest thing to do to win is to sell your emerging market equity because the EMs are, you know, well over twice as carbon intensive as, as global equities, maybe three times as carbon intensive as European equities. Um, so counterintuitively, those funds that have the most aggressive short-term emissions reduction targets mm-hmm. might be the ones that are actually counterproductive to putting money in the place that can really, really affect the transition to net zero. So, so that's something you know, that has always been a problem, this sort of management to data. I think it's like all public policy decisions, whether it's healthcare waiting lists or mm-hmm. um, education, classroom sizes, there were always unintended consequences to, to optimizing for, for one metric. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years. 
I think yeah, that that work ahead for twenty for the twenty twenty three in terms of setting targets uh, in mandates and such, such that um, investing for impact as well as financial return and risk uh, may help solve for some the of these. One thing problems. I would say is in the decarbonization space, particularly now in a world where I think it's now consensus that we move into recession next year. Mm. Investing for impact in this space, we believe, does not mean lower returns. It might even mean better returns, right? Because mm. you are in a very low growth world. We've seen consumer demand fall apart, right? You see any mm-hmm. consumer facing companies that rely on advertising, you rely on, you know, smartphone sales or whatever it might be, the, 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 those companies are really struggling. The, the decarbonization universe is a group of companies that have structural tailwinds, you know. Mm. Over time, those structural are stronger or less strong, but they're actually not in a bad place. We have pretty good policy in the US at the moment with Inflation Reduction Act. Um, mm-hmm. You have, as China comes out of zero COVID, you, you really have a lot of stimulus at this area. So, so, so you do have that structural growth tailwind that can help you particularly outperform in areas where the cyclical, the sort of mm. general economic environment is less attractive. Look, it'll be fascinating to see how these structural thematics play out. Um, I've so looked, uh, so enjoyed hearing you talk about uh, impact and how that gets in- integrated into a strategy. Deirdre Cooper from 91, thank you for your time. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you liked today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Green Away podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Green Away podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement And if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.